And yet, on the other hand, I don't look upon it as grim. Uh, All of this trouble and difficulty that we're seeing arise and head toward a cataclysm soon uh, is really good news uh, in the long run. It's, It's sad to think about destruction and famine and pestilence, the sword and death, and yet there's a purpose in it, which I think we'll see a little more as we get into Isaiah today. Uh, We began this particular section in chapter 40 last week (coughs) to show the beginnings of the Philadelphia church, that which is still alive from Sardis, uh, which is not a great deal and that which has become Laodicea, which is most, and has been us as well. Uh, I have said several times, I think, that right here, self-righteousness is our biggest problem. Uh, We have to be forgiving and loving and kind and merciful, or we will not receive forgiveness and mercy from God. So, uh, when we have people who are essentially trying to out-Matthew 18 each other, that is a gross misrepresentation and misuse of that scripture. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are at the root of our problem, not Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is people trying to straighten each other out. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives our Christian duty and responsibility to each other and to God to forgive, to show mercy, to love, to be humble, to be meek, uh, and on and on and on it goes in the Sermon on the Mount, which was Christ's beginning sermon to show people how they should live and what they should do. Uh, So we have to apply the right scriptures to the right situation in order to come up with the right solutions. And it is Matthew 5, 6, and 7 where we, on this property and in this congregation, have failed. So read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and uh, fold up your wings and put them in a box for a while uh, with Matthew 18. Uh, It is used as a hammer and a weapon instead of what it was intended for. I've explained it several times, but people don't listen, so I'm not going to go back there again today, but uh, I'll tell you... It's not the solution to our problems. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are. Uh, On the other hand, what has transpired here was prophesied. It was predicted. I can show you quite a few scriptures to show this would happen. Uh, If you go back to uh, 2005 and listen to the Jeremiah series, we went through Jeremiah 11. And I said then, when I went through that scripture, that there would eventually be a rebellion in Anatoth. And uh, now we are not talking about theory. We're talking about fulfillment of things that God said would happen. And there are other scriptures to go along with that, but that's a start. In any case, I don't mean to get into that, uh, or at least I guess I didn't intend to at all, but there it is. So uh, let's go back to Isaiah 40, because this is a very uh, insightful, a very prophetic and a very promising uh, set of scriptures uh, from Isaiah 40 on through really to the end of the book. But what it does is it shows uh, a voice crying in the wilderness in chapter 40, which we reviewed last week, 
and then showed the message that must be given, that all grass withers, that all mankind is going to wither before God, and then to give hope to Zion and Jerusalem in the things that God has said he is going to do. So it's a two-part message. It's one of a very grim message to the church overall and to the world overall, uh, that if we don't turn to God, we're in trouble. That's all there is to it. So, uh, then he introduces the idea that uh, good tidings are in these scriptures, and there is an awful lot of happiness and joy that uh, is to come. Then it went through a section at the end of chapter 40, which show that all nations are before God as nothing, like a drop in the bucket. Now, what is the overall theme of end-time prophecy? Have you stopped to think about it? What is the overall theme? We talk about great tribulation. We talk about Satan ruling and the new world order taking over the earth. We talk about uh, all the problems that exist. And we talk about Christ returning and resolving it. But think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, uh, many prophecies in the New Testament that were made based on the Old Testament prophecies, but nonetheless bringing them forward. And what you're going to find is that the overall theme of all prophecy and of the end-time prophecies, which includes all of it, can be boiled down to one statement. There is only one God. That's what God is going to do in this end time, is show the whole world who he is. Unless that can be seen, unless that can be put across, and people grasp that, they have no chance of serving God in a kingdom that he will set up, and there being peace on earth. We have a world today that is replete with thousands, millions of gods. You might say even billions of gods. Uh, many different religions uh, looking to different deities that they have dreamed up or which point to Satan who is real and who is the god of all religions but one. And then you have each individual who sets himself up as a god, setting himself above God and choosing things that are contrary to God for his or herself to think and act on. So what we have is a world who does not understand who the true God of the Bible is, the true God of creation. Uh, he is revealed in the pages of this book, but most people do not read this book, and most who do read it don't understand it because their mind has not been opened to understand it. There are people who memorize this book and can quote it to you word for word. There are actually people like that, and they don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> they can just tell you what it says. But God is going to prove that he is God. I've cited Ezekiel several times where he says over and over and over again, and they will know that I am God. Every, everything that Ezekiel says, and it says, and they will know that I am God. So everything that Ezekiel said was pointed toward that end. 
Everything Isaiah says here in this context that we're reading right now is to show who God is. Until you know who the leadership is, you simply cannot do what is right and follow right ways. If you got the leadership backward or wrong or upside down or looking to the wrong being, where are you going to get? You're not going to get to God's kingdom without knowing who He is. So that's bottom line, what has to be gotten across to the world. You need to consider that every time you start reading back here in any of these prophecies. What's God trying to get across? That's who's the boss. All right, let's pick it up uh, then in chapter 41. The end of 40 is, is about that very thing. I'm going to show you who I am and the rest of your grasshoppers down there. I think David put it in the Psalms that the earth is God's footstool. A footstool is not really that important, uh, but if you want real comfort, you like to kick your feet up on a footstool. But the footstool is not as near as important as the feet and the legs that go on it. A footstool is just a convenience or a comfort. And God has been happy and joyful throughout all eternity without us. You realize that? But He enjoys company. He's social. Uh, he wants to share what he has in the universe. So he created us to be a part of his kingdom if we will be the kind of individuals that can be in that kingdom and not create trouble, division, strife, difficulties, but live in peace and in harmony and in love for all eternity. That's the kind of people he's looking for. And so far from Adam until today, he's found very few. And even the ones that he's found who are willing still have trouble living up to what they ought to be. So it is a process down here that we go through to learn. Now, he's putting you and me through it now. This is our chance at salvation. This is our only chance. If we are converted, baptized, and have the laying on of hands and receive God's Spirit, we are having our chance at eternal life. It's the only one we'll get is this one. Now, the people out there in the world aren't having their chance yet. If they survive the Holocaust here at the end of the age, they will have their chance in the millennium. And all of those who have died from Adam until the end of this age will come up, if they've not understood the truth, and have their chance in the great white throne judgment, a time set by where children and adults and anybody who has lived on this earth and not known God is going to have that opportunity to come to know Him and have a physical lifetime to show that they will serve Him. Now, that's why Christ spoke in parables that they might be deceived and not understand. is because... People will not recognize God now. They are adamant against it. They have minds that are carnal and contrary to God by nature. They do not want to serve Him. You don't and I don't by nature. It is only through the indwelling of His Spirit that we even come close to wanting to serve God. So He knows that if He gave them all the truth now and converted them, most would turn from Him and reject Him. 
So he's provided a plan where we live on this earth in Satan's world, and people go through their whole lives in Satan's world full of misery, hate, anger, frustration, insecurity, war, you name it. And maybe by the time they've lived 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years in this world, they'll be ready to listen to something else when they wake up in the great white throne judgment, be humbled and ready to follow those whom God has set to lead them, the Father and the Son being the primary two of that. George here introduced me to uh, a link some time back, I guess it's been a couple of years now, uh, to a performance of Handel's Messiah that was put on by, uh, I had his name a second ago, Rue, uh, Andre, not Andre, uh, huh? Uh, is it Andre Rue? He's a, Bel- he's a Dutchman. Anyway, he, he puts inspirational music to a huge orchestra and gets the best performers, and it's, it's, uh, it's incredible what he puts out. Uh, so I kept that at the bottom of my emails, and when I look at it, I go back and I listen to that uh, because it's, it's very inspiring. And it, then it has some links to on YouTube to some of his other things like... Uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, and various things that are very inspiring pieces of music. So I listened to that last night, and then I went to three or four of those other inspirational ones. And I was really struck, because during the performances of that very powerful music, they pan out on the audience quite a bit. And here were people with tears streaming down their eyes, people shouting for joy, they even did even did one that I did. Uh, oh, happy days! It's kind of a, a spiritual, but it's very upbeat, and people like to dance. It's just a it's a it's a song of joy, really. And uh, here were people with jumping up and down, so happy, and tears streaming down their eyes of joy. And I just look at that panoply of human faces, and. It, it just struck me all over that really no human being wants anything any different than all other human beings. They all want to be happy. They want joyful lives. They want peace. They want security. They want uh, the fruit of the Spirit of God. That's what they really want. And in that audience, I'm sure there were thieves and liars and adulterers and uh, bank fraudsters and, you know, you name any sin, any human uh, thing. And I'm sure that those audiences of thousands that were out there, Andre Rue is his name, uh, I'm sure there were all kinds of people there. But it didn't matter whether they were good, bad, or indifferent as human beings walking the earth today. They all want the same things. And they think money will get it, or they think another maid will get it, or another this or another that will get them what they want, and that doesn't work either. But what God wants to do is to give all human beings a time of no sorrow, no tears, no hurt, no pain. As he says, he'll give the bride of Christ there in Revelation 20, or 21. So all human beings look to the same thing, but bottom line... God is the only one who can provide that for humankind. 
And that is the message of all the prophets from beginning to end, all through the Bible. Adam and Eve had everything you could name, but suddenly they are introduced to the idea that there might be something even more that they could have that would make life even better. And boy, did they get the wool pulled over their eyes. <laughs> they got introduced to a Pandora's box, if you will, of bad that they had never comprehended before, and it's been in the earth universe or through, through the earth ever since, through Satan's influence, which reacts on carnal, carnal human nature, which is enmity to God. So, we got to know who God is. That's, if you don't get that, you're not even ready to begin. Who is God? Christ even told people who thought they knew God intimately, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you worship, you don't know what. You worship your father, the devil. They didn't know they were worshiping Satan. That's fighting words to them. If I told the Jews today they're worshiping Satan, that would be fighting words to them. But they are. They literally are, whether they're Messianics or other Jews, because they still have the same doctrine, the same beliefs. And I don't mean to be a Jew-baiter here. Uh, that's true of any religion. Catholics are the same. Methodists and Baptists are all the same. Pentecostals. Hindus, you name it, none of them know who they worship. Some of the outright Satanists may know who they worship, but that's about it. But there are very, very few, a few thousand today, who know and worship the true God. So is this a problem? If you don't solve this, you're not going to solve the world's problems. It's got to be done. So he says in chapter 41 then, with that background, Keep silence before me, O coasts. Most people live along the coast, wherever you are in the world. So it, it means peoples everywhere, really. It says islands here, and really the continents are just big islands. Uh, just call them differently because of the size. But uh, So all peoples keep silent. No, nobody has a right to raise a hand and say a word, God says. And let the people renew their strength. So he says, keep silent before me. Now, is he going to be referring to whom here in this chapter? At the end of chapter 40, he says, Those that wait on the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So he is addressing here in chapter 41, in a larger sense, all peoples, but he is addressing his own people. Uh, because that was the last thought of the previous chapter. Who would be renewing their strength? Who has lost its strength? Has the church of God lost its strength? It's powerless to do anything. As Isaiah 39 says, uh, we would become eunuchs in Babylon, unable to regenerate, unable to produce children, unable to accomplish anything. So he's making a call here for those who have been made eunuchs, spiritually speaking, uh, of what was the church of God, to renew their strength, to find some strength somewhere. Well, silence before him is the beginning. We, we can present our answers, we can present our ideas about how things can be fixed, but there's only one way the scattering and the splintering in God's church can be fixed, and that includes right here, and we have suffered some of the same.
because of the same attitudes that have splendid other groups. So he says, shut up and listen, and renew your strength. Let them come near, then let them speak as you come near together to judgment. So he says, a renewal of strength is needed, and those who will endure will fly as eagles. Uh, so what does he then introduce in the next verse? Keep silent. I have the answer, God says. You don't have the answer. You have your ideas about Matthew 18, or your ideas about how we can communicate a little better, or your ideas about what you think is a solution to problems. He says, I'm the only one that has an answer. Listen to me. Okay? Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, and gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? Who's done that? Now, he tells Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4 that he would lay the foundation of the temple, and he would come, and he would finish it. He also says in the last verses of uh, Haggai that he will make him a signet over all the nations, that he will have the banner of God, he will have the power of God. He says, I'll give power to my two witnesses in Revelation 11, right? So, here he's, he's going to call a righteous man from the east. Now, if he's in the east, that means he's going to come to the west, huh? Uh, if you come from the east, you go west. So, God has a righteous man set aside somewhere in the east that he is going to bring. Called him to his foot, called him before God, and gave the nations before him. We'll see some more about that in a little bit. And gave him rule over kings. The kings of the earth are not going to have power over the two witnesses. They will have power over the kings of the earth. Because it has to be shown who God is. They are witnesses, what? That the world is evil? That's not the main idea. The main idea is to be a witness that God is God. That's the first thing that has to be gotten across. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his, to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. So God is going to give power to a man from the east, and he is going to come, and God will give him power over the nations, and they will be able to do nothing against him. The coasts of the people saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near, and came. So, the righteous will see, they'll see miracles, they'll see signs and wonders, and they will come. God will draw a certain amount of people to come and do his work. And he says in that place he will bring peace. There will not be peace until then. I don't care how hard we try, there's not going to be peace until God brings and stirs his remnant to come together and he says, in this place will I bring peace. It isn't going to exist until then. I mean, you know, some of us can maybe get along a little bit with each other, but, but true peace throughout will not happen until that occurs. If you think you've got the answer, keep silence before God, because you don't have the answer. It's right here in these verses. The people saw it and feared. Uh, 
the world is going to fear, scared to death. The people of God will stand back in fear because they see the power of God. So all peoples will fear uh, in one way or another. Now, in verse 6, then, he tells you what he's talking about. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smooths with the hammer him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails that it should, be, should not be moved. So this is a building project, right? You have workmen here encouraging and helping one another and working together in peace to accomplish a purpose. Well, what is it talking about? He says the temple must be built, Haggai, and that he will draw people together to build the temple. So you have to have workers to do that. Now, what happened in Solomon's day? God gave skill to the craftsmen that they might get the, the temple of God built in a goodly form and fashion with wonderful construction. So here you have people encouraging one another to be of good courage, not criticizing one another, not putting each other down, not uh, uh, criticizing the work that each one was accomplishing, but encouraging one another. So here you have a cooperative uh, effort under proper leadership. So that will happen. Uh, we read of Zechariah 1 about how four horns would stand up to divide and then four carpenters would cast them out and get rid of that bad influence so that building can be accomplished. But God has got us in a timeline now. We're not just talking about possibilities or prophecies. We're talking about fulfillments now. Uh, so God is beginning to move. No question about it. So he's talking about a building project here of the temple of God. Why is he raising up the righteous man from the east to come and build? To build a temple. That's what Zerubbabel is for, to build a temple. So when you read about building here and workmen cooperating, that's the project that is on the table. That's what's being done here. So we're talking about very real prophecies, about very real things that are beginning to occur and shall occur henceforth as we move forward. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I gave, I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Why are we instructed in Isaiah 51 to look to the hole from which we are digged, Abraham and Sarah? Why was Elijah told in, Mal in Malachi 4 to uh, turn us to our fathers and to our Father in heaven? That's what it says here. Uh, when he says, starts talking about building the church, he starts talking about Jacob, the, uh, the people of Abraham, his friend. So he, Christ even told us, once we're converted, we become his friends. Now, what he told the disciples there at the, just before he died, John 16, I think it is, 15 to 17 anyway, that uh, now he would call us friends and he would let us in on everything. Well, I'll tell you what, there aren't a hundred people on the face of the earth today 
that could read what we're reading today and have a clue what it's talking about. Do we grasp that? Because God has revealed it and shown what he is planning to do. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, what is he going to do? He says he'll draw his people together from the north, south, east, and west. He'll bring them from the ends of the earth. That's what he's talking about. And called you from the chief men thereof, and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you away. Now he says many will be called, and few chosen. Uh, a lot can happen to us once we're called. And then there's a parable about uh, those who fall on stony ground, those fall on good ground, those fall, you know, different places, and sometimes they don't survive. And it talks about the wheat and the tares growing up together. But there comes a point where the wheat and the tares have to be separated. Uh, you let them go together to a certain point, and then you say, no, this has to go. So he is cho choosing some, a few. Fear you not those few whom he stirs to come and build the temple. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. He tells us in other places, into Zephaniah, just before Haggai, where it talks about building the temple. To fear not, uh, and to work, to be of good courage, uh, and to be strong told Joshua the same thing going into the land there in Joshua 1 and 2. Uh, you go through, and when God starts a project, he tells people to be strong, to be of good courage, to fear not, and to work. So he's repeating part of that right here in the context of beginning to build the temple and the people that he's drawn together, that remnant, to do the job. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with you shall perish. So wherever God begins doing this work that we're talking about here, uh, we need to be very, very, very careful in our approach and how we look at it. Because any who are angry or bitter or against and make enemies out of those whom God is using... Um, are going to face trouble. Uh, they'll be counted as nothing, and even those who strive with you shall perish. So this is an end-time prophecy about a specific project, the building the temple of God, uh, and he says any who fight against that will perish. Well, that's really scary. We need to think about it very, very deeply. Be sure we're not on the wrong side of things. Uh, verse 12, You shall seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with you. They that war against you shall be as nothing and as a thing of nothing. He even says that John the Baptist there in Mark 9 will, be, will have much trouble and be held in utter contempt or thought of as nothing. And yet God turns it around here and says, Do the job and those who come against you will become nothing. This is just scripture. Uh, I have to apply it wherever it applies as time goes on. 
Verse 13, For I, the Eternal your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. So, those who will obey God and serve God and build His temple will have God holding their hand and taking care of them and helping them. Then he says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I've always thought that was an interesting expression. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob became Israel, and Israel scattered as the sand of the sea, and uh, many, many, many millions of people, and yet God calls him a worm. Well, I think that expression, though it refers to any and all people, really, who are we compared to God? (laughs) We're like worms under the bottom of the barrel. Uh, But in this particular context, it's talking about a very small group of people. And he says, fear not, you worm Jacob. So even compared not just to God, but to the peoples of the world, the number called originally into the church and the truth of God, those who are doing this particular job we're talking about here, building the temple, will be as small as worms by comparison. Fear not, you worm Jacob, and you men of Israel. Now, my margin says in the the Hebrew here, should say, and you few men of Israel. So, we know that those who are called and stirred to build a temple will only be a remnant or a 10% of what was of the calling of God. And some will be called at the last minute, uh, not having been around for 40 or 50 or 60 years, but called at the midnight hour. Uh, perhaps there will be some who come uh, whom God calls right toward the end. Who knows? Or just before this begins. Because if some fail to do what he called them to do, uh, get sidetracked or lose their focus or get some other idea in mind about how they think things ought to be done, uh, who knows what will happen. But it's going to be a few men of Israel. Well, Israel, Jerusalem, and Zion are code names for the church. We know that very, very well, Hebrews 12, 22, and 3. So, when you're speaking of the church here, This is only going to be a few men of the church, okay? A remnant. And God will help them, because He is their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So He is going to make clear here who He is, even to the few men of Israel. He calls them worms. He tells them they're nothing. And that they will need His help. That He will redeem them. Verse 15 says, Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. So here he's speaking of the power he will give to his end-time witness against the world and against Satan, and make them a sharp threshing instrument. What does a sharp threshing instrument do? It cuts a crop down. It harvests. It uh, kills plants. Uh, is all grass going to wither, as he said back in chapter 40? I think so. Now, you find this same expression we read here in chapter 15, back in uh, Micah 4. I think I'll turn back and read that right quick and tie it together, because it's uh, the context there is also very, very clear. Micah 4. Here he's talking about in the last days, in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
And uh, however one will have his own vine and fig tree at verse 4, and the other place that's mentioned in Zechariah 3 about Joshua and the remnant that begin to, to gather there. So then he talks about us having our king dead, the church falling apart, and how we're in travail and how we're to leave the city, verse 10, and go live in the field or out in the wilderness, and there God will preserve us. Uh, I'm just paraphrasing that and skipping along. You're familiar with it. But notice verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain to the eternal, and their substance to the eternal of the whole earth. God says, I own everything. It's all mine. Haggai says, uh, the gold and the silver is mine. Oh, God owns the world. He owns us. And he is going to put the earth down, and he's going to do it by the power that he gives two of his witnesses. Uh, chapter 5, verse 5, says the man, this man, speaking of uh, Zerubbabel, I'm sure, shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land, and they will send out seven, even eight principal men, and they'll waste the land of Assyria, that's Russia, with the sword, and the land of Nimrod, and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. So God is going to raise up the church to go against the Assyrian. Uh, his two witnesses, and those who witness with them that God is God. Because they think that Putin is God, or somebody else is God, and they will be shown to be wrong. God is going to show that he, and he only, is God. Notice Isaiah 31, and verse 8. Well, yeah, and then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited, and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign. Who is the ensign? Last verse of Haggai, too. Zerubbabel is the ensign. So the Assyrian is going to flee before Zerubbabel says the Eternal, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. So, God's church is going to turn the heat on the governments of this world. Uh, let's throw one more with that, Isaiah thirty-seven twenty-two. This is the word uh, which the Eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn, the daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. He's talking about the Assyrian here in verse 18. So, uh, God is going to give his people triumph over the Assyrian when he comes into our land. Did he do it with Gideon and the 300? Yeah, he did. Uh, those 300 people, just by yell waving their lanterns and yelling, caused, what was it, 140 or 160,000, always get it backward. Uh, men to kill themselves and run in fear in the night. So God can do these things. And he said he's going to do it again. So who is he talking about here in Isaiah 41? He's talking about Zerubbabel, who is the signet over the nations. So this is talking about the end-time church here, 
building the temple, and no people will be allowed to come against them and stop them. He says there in Zechariah 2 that he'll be a wall of fire and a, a defense around us so that they can't do anything about us. Not only that, he'll give us offensive weapons so that the Assyrian can be destroyed before us. doesn't mean they're not going to take the nation. They are. But they won't take the protected area where God wants his temple and Jerusalem to be built. Bottom line. <clears throat> you shall fan them, verse 16, and the wind shall carry them away, just like they're blown away by a whirlwind will scatter them, it says. And you shall rejoice in the eternal and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. But when you see your enemies destroyed before your very face, who are you going to glory in? Self? No, you'll glory in the Holy One of Israel. So he's going to make a He's going to make the Assyrian coalition, which is not just the Assyrian, but all those who are with it, China, the BRICS, uh, perhaps even the Muslims will join with them against us. They already have, haven't they? <laughs> it's going to get worse, not better. And the Edomites as well. <clears throat> so uh, all of these will put, be put in terror uh, because they are the mountains of the world that will be put down because God will make his people a sharp threshing instrument. Am I dreaming up something here? Am I what this says? Doesn't this tie in with all these other scriptures? <clears throat> Nobody understands it, but everybody one day will face it, and then they will understand. And this is only the beginning here. Verse 17, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Eternal, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Remember when a poor and needy people came out of Mitzrayim, across the Red Sea, and they cried for water? God didn't fail them, did he? He gave it to them. However, there was a problem. They didn't like the way that God was delivering them. They didn't like the answers that he had given so far. They thought they had a better answer. They thought God was failing them. They thought God didn't have the right leadership with Moses. They murmured. They complained. And their carcasses fell in the desert. We need to keep that in mind. It isn't God's problem. It's our problem. We better have faith in God and in the leadership he provides. Otherwise, we're in trouble. We tend to blame a man and say, well, we're not denying God, we're, we're denying a man. No, you're not. You're denying God if God put the man there. It's God's job to take care of the man, whether it be Moses or whether it be Noah or whether it be Paul or Peter or James or John or Zerubbabel or Joshua or whoever it is. That's God's responsibility, not yours or mine. So be very, very careful with your murmuring and complaining uh, here in the end time. Uh, when these things begin to come to pass. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So he is giving understanding, knowledge, good doctrine, which is about Christ and his word and his blood, uh, the water of the word. And I think it will also be physical water that he will provide. Uh, in the desert as well. These, these prophecies are dual in that sense. 
sense. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, uh, the myrtle, the oil tree, and in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box elder together. Seven kinds of trees he says he'll plant. Well, there are seven churches. Uh, he says he'll put a stone before Joshua and the eyes of all seven of the churches will turn there because of the signs and wonders that are done. It is there's nothing we can do, it is nothing anybody can do as a human being that is going to cause the church to gather. God said, I will stir them. God said that he would turn their hearts, that he would plant these in the desert. So it's something that will show that God is God. And until God shows his hand, nothing you could do or nothing I could do will bring solidarity and unity and peace in the church. Nothing. No effort we put out can accomplish that. It is not until God shows his mighty hand, and that is what will impress people. Nobody, no human, can do anything that will impress the church. It is going to have to be God and his mighty hand, and the signs and wonders that he does. Any other effort will fall short. It will just be men trying to do things among men. Does that mean we ought to just go ahead and give in to our human nature and war and fight among ourselves? No. Uh, but we need to understand long term that it is only God who can serve, solve the church's problems. And he has shown how he will do it. He will choose to work where he will choose to work. Now, out of all the scattering that has occurred within the church, do you see anyone anywhere who can unify it? He tells us there in Micah 4 that our king is dead, our counselor has perished. Uh, we have scattered and divided, and God has blown upon us, and he has spewed us out, and he has divided us. He did it on purpose so that he will see who will repent and turn to him and serve him with their whole heart. And he is the one who said, I will gather a remnant. I will put it together, and in this place will I bring peace. So if you think you can, you have an idol. That, if you, that idol is you and your mind and your thought that you can accomplish and do something. We can't do anything about it, brethren. So the church is scattered like... He said, like a whirlwind, all over the earth. And nobody can fix it. Nobody has a solution. So it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Each group gets smaller. They try to do things that will cause themselves to grow when people come in the front door and go out the back door. It happens here just like it does everywhere else. But you know what? I think we're in a wonderful position. I think we're in a great position. Why do I say that? Because whatever leadership there is in whatever group of what is left of the church, wherever it is, God will either cause that leadership at some point to do signs and wonders and show that he is with it and guiding and leading it, or he won't. Won't that make it relatively easy then? Here is where God is working. Go there. It is where God obviously is not working. Don't worry about it. 
God's going to make it fairly easy, although 90% are going to take the wrong course. That's what he said. 90% will go the wrong way. They will not accept the leadership that God gives. Bottom line. Only 10% will respond positively. Nine out of ten are going to go the wrong way, even when God shows his mighty hand. Can you believe that? I believe it with all my heart. Because that's what this book says. Only 10% will respond. So really, I don't have a problem. We've had trouble right here in this group. Uh, I'm not particularly worried about it myself. Because if God gave me a commission to do something, and I fail at it, then he can remove me in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Just like that. Boom. It's easy. He can even, even at this late date, he could either raise up a stone, or he could give some man somewhere some dreams and visions that would catch him right up to speed, and they could come here and take over and do the job. So I'm not the key at all. I'm relaxed about it. I'm not the key whatsoever. God is. Now, if God chooses to remove me, then I'll be gone, and that makes that clear. Now, if he chooses to use this group to show some signs and wonders, and that his hand is here in this place, then that makes it easy too, doesn't it? So it's easy either way. Now, you could apply that to any group of the Church of God anywhere. Just pick a number. God will either work through the leadership is there, or he won't. So, that's easy for me. I'll just kind of keep trying to do what I'm supposed to do. I'll keep working every day at obeying God and repenting of my faults and my weaknesses and my problems. And then it's up to him whether to continue with me here or to remove me. Simple. Uh, he has that option. I pray to him regularly that he forgive me and have mercy and let me finish what it is that he commissioned me to do, whatever that may be. Uh, but he has the option. You know, with Saul, he, was, he had appointed Saul but then Saul got the big head, so he anointed David. David came in, and when Saul got killed, David took over as king of Israel. It's real simple. God had it all figured out ahead of time. So you can throw rocks at me all you want, but if God put me here to do a job, he will either, through the blood of Christ, allow me to finish it, or he'll remove me. That makes your job simple. So why do we wrestle? Why do we fight? Good question. We'll not go there. But mainly it's because of Revelation 3, uh, because we're self-righteous and can't get the beam out of our own eyes, and therefore we're constantly picking at and trying to get the beam out of somebody else's eye. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as I said in the beginning. That's the answer to our problems. Along with these prophecies that show how God is going to fix it, we can't. So there's no sense in wasting a lot of time trying to fix that which God himself says he will fix in his time and in his way. And whatever he's doing, wherever he's doing, and he says if anybody fights it, they're going to die. Or as Jeremiah 11 puts it, they'll go into 
famine, pestilence, and war, and so on, and uh, he will take care of it. I'm not speaking specifically of the rebellion of Anatoth, whatever that is. So, there's nothing to worry about. God will take care of things, and he will show you, he will show me, uh, where he's working and what he's doing. And then we have a responsibility to recognize that and not be like the 90% who don't. Trust God. Have faith in God. That's the bottom line. If you don't have faith and trust in God, uh, then you're in trouble. And that's where they were with Moses as they went into the wilderness. It was really God they were blaming. They, they said, Moses, you're the problem, but God said, no, uh, I'm dealing with Moses. Your problem's with me. And then, did Moses give them manna? Did Moses give them water? I don't recall the story that way, do you? Seems like God provided the manna. God provided the water. So Moses wasn't the problem. They were rebelling against God, and he is the one who told them they would die in the wilderness, not Moses. So we read these scriptures and say, if you do God's work and they hate you, I will take care of them. That is the way he's always worked and always will work. So we're talking here about the end-time church and what God is going to do through it. And he gives us the answers right here. He's talking about what he's going to do out in the desert and the wilderness. Whether it's with you or me or it's with somebody else, that's the place he's going to do it. Near the original Jerusalem and in the original promised lands where it's going to happen. You and I may be there and we may not, but... He's going to plant seven trees, seven churches in the wilderness and the desert. Why? Why is he going to do that? Verse 20. That they may see and know and consider and understand together. When God shows his mighty hand, he's doing it for the purpose of letting people comprehend who he is, what he's doing, where he's doing it, and who he's doing it with. Is that part of what I told you the theme is? Who is God? Where is God? That's the only real question that has to be answered. And in his time, and in his way, he is going to show that. Verse 21, Produce your cause, says the Eternal. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. God throws out a challenge here. He says, I'm going to plant seven churches, a remnant of them, in the wilderness, and I'm going to show them and let them consider and understand. This is the way it's going to happen. Now, if you think it's going to happen any other way, you're not paying attention to the Bible. You've come up with some human reasonings about how you think things are going to be. You've got a wrong idea. There's only one church, uh, ultimately, in the wilderness. That's going to be the Philadelphia church. All these remnants of all these other groups will be called together to do one work together. And though they may have been from disparate parts of the church, they will all come together as one. Instead of individual trees, it's going to become a forest. Lebanon shall be counted as a forest. 
So all working together to form one forest out of individual trees. That's what's coming. So he says, let them show forth and show us what shall happen. God says, this is what's going to happen. You got a, you got a better idea? If you have some other, some other thing you think is going to happen, we're all going to jump on a plane, go to Petra? Ain't going to happen. That was a Protestant idea. It got brought into the church of God, but it isn't in the Bible. You can't count on that one. All right. Who has an idea what's going to happen? Go around to all the groups of the church, wherever they may be, big or small. Let them give you the answer of what's going to happen, how God's going to fix the church. Not one has the answer. Not one understands what we're reading today out of this Bible. None. Let them show the former things, what they be, that you may consider them and know the latter end of them. They don't understand and know how to tie together all of the events of the past and the types from the past that have a final fulfillment at the end. They don't understand the history of Israel. They don't understand the history of the church. And therefore, they cannot apply those things to what is happening here at the end. But haven't we seen from Genesis to Revelation that all those scriptures tie together and are only forerunners of a greater fulfillment at the end? Yeah. says it right here. But nobody knows the story. Nobody knows how to put Haggai and Zechariah together. You know what most of the Church of God still believes today? That somehow they're going to get the Dome of the Rock over in the false Jerusalem moved and the Jews are going to put up a temple. Maybe, maybe not, but it's going to be the temple of God if they do. The temple of God has to be in the original promised land at the original site of Jerusalem. And nobody knows where that is but a few. So they don't have a clue of what's going to happen and where it's going to happen. Nobody. All right, let's go on. Anybody know the latter end? Who do you know? Anywhere in the church who understands the church is going to build the latter temple. Who do you know that says the church is going to build Jerusalem? Daniel 9. The order to build Jerusalem is given. Anybody know anybody that knows this story? Does United know it? Does Jerry Fleury know it? Rod Meredith know it? Fred Coulter know it? Nobody. You can't name anybody. There is none. Now what God says? Show the things that are come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. <laughs> they can't do it. They don't have a clue. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Get up. Do something. Let's see if you're right or wrong. Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of nothing. An abomination is he that chooses you. So all these groups of the church out there 
are choosing abomination because they are doing nothing. They do not understand the plan of God. And they are not chosen as the leadership to do what needs to be done. Then he goes on to say, you, you can provide all your answers, whatever you think the answer is, but I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, and shall call upon my name. So here he's not designating someone who is from the east who will come from the west, chapter 41, verse 2. That's the rubber belt. Someone else here who is from the north, has been in the north, and will come from the east. And he shall come upon princes upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay. So God says, this also is going to happen. All right, let's understand. Verse 26. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? Where is this story told? Where is the beginnings of it? How did you hear it? Where is it from? Who has declared from the beginning that we may know the story that's being talked about? He is righteous? Question mark. Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Yes, there is none that hears your words. No one. There's no one who hears the words of Isaiah here and understands them in the church of God. Right? He says there's no one that does. Now let's see if there's one exception to that. Verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, how many even know what Zion is? How many people in the church of God could you name that understand Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 that Zion and Jerusalem are code words for the church. I don't know of anyone anywhere. I read that verse, read over it probably dozens, maybe hundreds of times through my life. I never got it, never understood it. Do now. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So God is going to show the story to someone, somewhere, just one, the first, and he will say, Behold them, more than one. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. Now, how did this section of Scripture open? There will be a voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then verse 9 and 10 talks about one who would bring good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem. So only one. One voice, just one. And he's emphasizing that, saying that there will be one who will come and speak of them that are to come. One that brings good tidings. So the voice crying in the wilderness is only one. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor. So out of all that there is, God will reveal it and show it and produce it through one, just one, no more than that. So when I ask you, do you know anyone, uh, there's only one, and you've got to find where that is, because that'll be the only one. 
And the statement I made is correct. There's only one place you're going to find it. The rest of them have no idea. There was no man among them. There was no counselor that understood. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images and wind and confusion. So, it's idolatry, really, what most of the church is doing today. Some of them are just simply outright worshiping Herbert Armstrong. He's about all they talk about. He's been dead 30 years. How long has God been dead? Anybody know? How long has God been dead? I don't think he's dead. I think he's still very alive. Herbert Armstrong's dead. Let him rot in peace. Rest in peace, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. That's what we do. We go ash to ash and dust to dust. His work is finished. What he did is finished. It was good, but it's finished. It's done. A new work has to be accomplished. A new work has to be started. And it has to be started through them, the two, and those that are drawn to them. Remember Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, and the remnant that God stirs to come to them. That's going to be the only place. The rest is vanity and wind and nothing, and actually idolatry by people who think they are going to do something when they are not. It is God who is going to do it, and he's going to do it in the way and in the time and in the place with those whom he chooses. That is all. It's 2.15 already. I don't guess there's any sense in starting chapter 42, so we'll just finish with the last statement. That is all for today, but that is all that God provides. That is all that He is going to do. That is where He's going to do it, is in the desert. And He makes it very clear here that that's where He's going to build and what He's going to do. And you better find that answer, because there's only one place you're going to get it. Take the general's brethren, turn to page 105, page number 105. Following this hymn, we'll be ready to close.